The Offshore Pirate, Part 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Reading by Bologna Times. The Offshore Pirate, Part 6, by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Time, having no axe to grind, showered down upon them three days of afternoons. When the sun cleared the porthole of Ardita's cabin an hour after dawn, she rose cheerily, donned her bathing suit, and went up on deck. The negroes would leave their work when they saw her, and crowd, chuckling and chattering, to the rail as she floated, an agile minnow, on and under the surface of the clear water. Again in the cool of the afternoon she would swim, and loll, and smoke with Carlyle upon the cliff, or else they would lie on their sides in the sands of the southern beach, talking little, but watching the day fade colorfully and tragically into the infinite languor of a tropical evening. And with the long sunny hours, Ardita's idea of the episode, as incidental, madcap, a sprig of romance in a desert of reality, gradually left her. She dreaded the time when he would strike off southward. She dreaded all the eventualities that presented themselves to her. Thoughts were suddenly troublesome, and decisions odious. Had prayers found place in the pagan rituals of her soul, she would have asked of life only to be unmolested for a while, lazily acquiescent to the ready, naive flow of Carlyle's ideas, his vivid boyish imagination, and the vein of monomania that seemed to run crosswise through his temperament and colored his every action. But this is not a story of two on an island, not concerned primarily with love bred of isolation. It is merely the presentation of two personalities, and its idyllic setting among the palms of the Gulf Stream is quite incidental. Most of us are content to exist and breed and fight for the right to do both, and the dominant idea, the foredoomed attest to control one's destiny, is reserved for the fortunate or unfortunate few. To me, the interesting thing about Ardita is the courage that will tarnish with her beauty and youth. "'Take me with you,' she said late one night, as they sat lazily in the grass under the shadowy, spreading palms. The negroes had brought ashore their musical instruments, and the sound of weird ragtime was drifting softly over on the warm breath of the night. "'I'd love to reappear in ten years, as a fabulously wealthy high-caste Indian lady,' she continued. Carlyle looked at her quickly. "'You can, you know.' She laughed. <laughs> "'Is it a proposal of marriage?' Extra! Ardita Farnham becomes pirate's bride! Society girl kidnapped by a ragtime bank robber! It wasn't a bank. What was it? Why won't you tell me? I don't want to break down your illusions. My dear man, I have no illusions about you. I mean, your illusions about yourself. She looked up in surprise. About myself? What on earth have I got to do with whatever stray felonies you've committed? That remains to be seen. She reached over and patted his hand. Dear Mr. Curtis Carlyle, she said softly, are you in love with me? As if it mattered. But it does, because I think I'm in love with you. He looked at her, ironically. 
thus swelling your January total to half a dozen, he suggested. Suppose I call your bluff and ask you to come to India with me. Shall I? He shrugged his shoulders. We can get married in Calo. What sort of life can you offer me? I don't mean that unkindly, but seriously. What would become of me if the people who want that $20,000 reward ever catch up with you? I thought you weren't afraid. I never am, but I won't throw my life away just to show one man I'm not. I wish you'd been poor, just a little poor girl dreaming over a fence in a warm cow country. Wouldn't it have been nice? I'd have enjoyed astonishing you, watching your eyes open on things, if you only wanted things. Don't you see? I know, like girls who stare into the windows of jewelry stores. Yes, and want the big oblong watch that's platinum and has diamonds all round the edge. Only you'd decide it was too expensive and choose one of white gold for a hundred dollar. Then I'd say, expensive? I should say not. And we'd go into the store, and pretty soon the platinum one would be gleaming on your wrist. That sounds so nice and vulgar and fun, doesn't it? murmured Ardita. Doesn't it? Can't you see us traveling round and spending money right and left, and being worshipped by bellboys and waiters? Oh, blessed are the simple rich, for they inherit the earth. I honestly wish we were that way. I love you, Ardita, he said gently. Her face lost its childish look for a moment, and became oddly grave. I love to be with you, she said more than with any man I've ever met, and I like your looks and your dark old hair and the way you go over the side of the rail when we come ashore. In fact, Curtis Carlyle, I like all the things you do when you're perfectly natural. I think you've got nerve, and you know how I feel about that. Sometimes when you're around I've been tempted to kiss you suddenly and tell you that you were just an idealistic boy with a lot of cast nonsense in his head. Perhaps if I were just a little bit older, and a little more bored, I'd go with you. As it is, I think I'll go back and marry that other man." Over across the silver lake the figures of the negroes writhed and squirmed in the moonlight like acrobats who, having been too long inactive, must go through their tacks from sheer surplus energy. In single file they marched, weaving in concentric circles, now with their heads thrown back, now bent over their instruments like piping fawns, and from trombone and saxophone ceaselessly whined a blended melody, sometimes riotous and jubilant, sometimes haunting and plaintive, as a death dance from the Congo's heart. "'Let's dance!' cried Ardita. "'I can't sit still with that perfect jazz going on.' Taking her hand, he led her out into a broad stretch of hard, sandy soil that the moon flooded with great splendor. They floated out like drifting moths under the rich, hazy light, and as the fantastic symphony wept and exulted and wavered and despaired, Ardita's last sense of reality dropped away, and she abandoned her imagination to the dreamy summer scents of tropical flowers and the infinite starry spaces overhead, feeling that if she opened her eyes it would be to find herself dancing with a ghost in a land created by her own fancy. This is what I should call an exclusive private dance, he whispered.
I feel quite mad, but delightfully mad. We're enchanted. The shades of unnumbered generations of cannibals are watching us from high up on the side of the cliff there. And I'll bet the cannibal women are saying that we danced too close, and that it was immodest of me to come without my nose-ring. They both laughed softly, and then their laughter died as over across the lake they heard the trombones stop in the middle of a bar, and the saxophones give a startled moan and fade out. "'What's the matter?' called Carlyle. After a moment's silence they made out the dark figure of a man rounding the silver lake at a run. As he came closer they saw it was Babe, in a state of unusual excitement. He drew up before them and gasped out his news in a breath. "'Ship's standin' off show bout half a mile, sir. Mose, he is on watch. He say looks if she done anchored.' "'A ship? What kind of ship?' demanded Carlyle, anxiously. Dismay was in his voice, and Ardita's heart gave a sudden wrench as she saw his whole face suddenly droop. "'He say he don't know, sir.' Are they landing a boat? No, sir. We'll go up, said Carlyle. They ascended the hill in silence, Ardita's hand still resting on Carlyle's, as it had when they finished dancing. She felt it clench nervously from time to time, as though he were unaware of the contact, but though he hurt her, she made no attempt to remove it. It seemed an hour's climb before they reached the top, and crept cautiously across the silhouetted plateau to the edge of the cliff. After one short look, Carlyle involuntarily gave a little cry. It was a revenue boat with six-inch guns mounted fore and aft. "'They know,' he said with a short intake of breath. "'They know. They picked up the trail somewhere.' "'Are you sure they know about the channel? They may be only standing by to take a look at the island in the morning. From where they are they couldn't see the opening in the cliff.' They could with field glasses, he said hopelessly. He looked at his wristwatch. It's nearly two now. They won't do anything until dawn, that's certain. Of course, there's always the faint possibility that they're waiting for some other ship to join, or for a coaler. I suppose we may as well stay right here. The hour passed, and they lay there, side by side, very silently, their chins in their hands like dreaming children. In back of them squatted the negroes, patient, resigned, acquiescent, announcing now and then with sonorous snores that not even the presence of danger could subdue their unconquerable African craving for sleep. Just before five o'clock, Babe approached Carlyle. There were half a dozen rifles aboard the Narcissus, he said. Had it been decided to offer no resistance? A pretty good fight might be made, he thought, if they worked out some plan. Carlyle laughed and shook his head. That isn't a spick army out there, babe. That's a revenue boat. It'd be like a bow and arrow trying to fight a machine gun. If you want to bury those bags somewhere and take a chance on recovering them later, go on and do it. But it won't work. They'd dig this island over from one end to the other. It's a lost battle all round, babe. Babe inclined his head silently and turned away, and Carlyle's voice was husky as he turned to Ardita. "'There's the best friend I ever had. He'd die for me, and be proud to, if I'd let him.' "'You've given up?' "'I've no choice. 
Of course, there's always one way out, the sure way, but that can wait. I wouldn't miss my trial for anything. It'll be an interesting experiment in notoriety. Miss Farnham testifies that the pirate's attitude to her was at all times that of a gentleman. Don't, she said. I'm awfully sorry. When the color faded from the sky and the lusterless blue changed to leaden gray, a commotion was visible on the ship's deck, and they made out a group of officers clad in white duck gathered near the rail. They had field glasses in their hands and were attentively examining the islet. It's all up, said Carlyle grimly. Damn, whispered Ardita. She felt tears gathering in her eyes. We'll go back to the yacht, he said. I prefer that to be hunted out up here like a possum. Leaving the plateau, they descended the hill, and reaching the lake, were rowed out to the yacht by the silent negroes. Then, pale and weary, they sank into the settees and waited. Half an hour later, in the dim gray light, the nose of the revenue boat appeared in the channel and stopped, evidently fearing that the bay might be too shallow. From the peaceful look of the yacht, the man and the girl in the settees, and the negroes lounging curiously against the rail, they evidently judged that there would be no resistance. For two boats were lowered casually over the side, one containing an officer and six blue jackets, and the other four rowers, and in the stern two gray-haired men in yachting flannels. Ardita and Carlyle stood up, and half unconsciously started toward each other. Then he paused, and putting his hand suddenly into his pocket, he pulled out a round, glittering object and held it out to her. "'What is it?' she asked, wonderingly. "'I'm not positive, but I think from the Russian inscription inside that it's your promised bracelet.' "'Where? Where on earth?' "'It came out of one of those bags, you see. Curtis Carlyle and his six black buddies, in the middle of their performance in the tea-room of the hotel at Palm Beach, suddenly changed their instruments for automatics and held up the crowd. I took this bracelet from a pretty, over-rouged woman with red hair.' Ardita frowned and then smiled. "'So that's what you did. You have got nerve.' He bowed. "'A well-known bourgeois quality,' he said. And then Don slanted dynamically across the deck and flung the shadows reeling into gray corners. The dew rose and turned to golden mist, thin as a dream, enveloping them until they seemed gossamer relics of the late night, infinitely transient, and already fading. For a moment, sea and sky were breathless, and Don held a pink hand over the young mouth of life. Then from out in the lake came the complaint of a rowboat and the swish of oars. Suddenly, against the golden furnace low in the east, their two graceful figures melted into one, and he was kissing her spoiled young mouth. "'It's a sort of glory,' he murmured after a second. She smiled up at him. Happy, are you? Her sigh was a benediction, an ecstatic surety that she was youth and beauty now as much as she would ever know. For another instant life was radiant, and time a phantom, and their strength eternal. Then there was a bumping, scraping sound as the rowboat scraped alongside. Up the ladder scrambled the two gray-haired men, the officer, 
and two of the sailors with their hands on their revolvers. Mr. Farnham folded his arms and stood looking at his niece. So, he said, nodding his head slowly. With a sigh, her arms unwound from Carlyle's neck, and her eyes, transfigured and far away, fell upon the boarding party. Her uncle saw her upper lip slowly swell into that arrogant pout he knew so well. So, he repeated savagely, so this is your idea of, of romance, a runaway affair with a high-seas pirate. Ardita glanced at him carelessly. What an old fool you are, she said quietly. Is that the best you can say for yourself? No, she said as if considering. No, there's something else. There's that well-known phrase with which I have ended most of our conversations for the past few years. Shut up. And with that she turned, included the two old men, the officer, and the two sailors in a curt glance of contempt, and walked proudly down the companionway. But had she waited an instant longer, she would have heard a sound from her uncle, quite unfamiliar in most of their interviews. He gave vent to a whole-hearted, amused chuckle, in which the second old man joined. The latter turned briskly to Carlyle, who had been regarding the scene with an air of cryptic amusement. "'Well, Toby,' he said genially, "'you incurable, harebrained, romantic chaser of rainbows, did you find that she was the person you wanted?' Carlyle smiled confidently. "'Why, naturally,' he said. "'I've been perfectly sure ever since I first heard tell of her wild career. That is why I had Babe send up the rocket last night.' "'I'm glad you did,' said Colonel Moreland gravely. "'We've been keeping pretty close to you in case you should have trouble with those six strange niggers, and we hoped we'd find you two in some such compromising position,' he sighed. "'Well, set a crank to catch a crank. "'Your father and I sat up all night hoping for the best, or perhaps it's the worst. "'Lord knows you are welcome to her, my boy. She's run me crazy. "'Did you give her the Russian bracelet my detective got from that Mimi woman?' Carlyle nodded. "'Shh,' he said. "'She's coming on deck.' Ardita appeared at the head of the companionway and gave a quick, involuntary glance at Carlyle's wrists. A puzzled look passed across her face. Back aft, the negroes had begun to sing, and the cool lake, fresh with dawn, echoed serenely to their low voices. "'Ardita,' said Carlyle, unsteadily. She swayed a step toward him. "'Ardita,' he repeated breathlessly. "'I've got to tell you the—the the truth. It was all a plant.' Ardita. My name isn't Carlyle. It's Moreland. Toby Moreland. The story was invented, Ardita, invented out of thin Florida air. She stared at him, bewildered, amazement, disbelief, and anger flowing in quick waves across her face. The three men held their breaths. Moreland, senior, took a step toward her. Mr. Farnham's mouth dropped a little open as he waited, panic-stricken, for the expected crash but it did not come. Ardita's face became suddenly radiant, and, with a little laugh, she went swiftly to young Moreland and looked up at him without a trace of wrath in her gray eyes. "'Will you swear,' she said quietly, "'that it was entirely a product of your own brain?' 
I swear, said young Moreland eagerly. She drew his head down and kissed him gently. What an imagination, she said softly and almost enviously. I want you to lie to me just as sweetly as you know how for the rest of my life. The negro's voices floated drowsily back, mingled in an air that she heard them singing before. Time is a thief, gladness and grief, cling to the leaf as it yellows. What was in the bags? she asked softly. Florida mud, he answered. That was one of the two true things I told you. Perhaps I can guess the other one, she said, and reaching up on her tiptoes, kissed him softly in the illustration. End of Part 6 End of The Offshore Pirate by F. Scott Fitzgerald